What is it that makes us as humans different, even shall I say better than monkeys? Well, maybe not much these days, but we do have a few things going for us as a species, things that make us more special, more human than our primate cousins. It's our ability to think and to create. It's the arts and sciences that make our lives better and make us smarter and, yes, more special in many ways than those pesky monkeys. Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Hanna, and on today's episode of Better Than Monkeys, we get a visit from an award-winning published author. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? In this episode, she'll take us back to the beginning, tell us all about how she first got bit by the literary bug, how she found her voice as a poet, how she juggles her career and writing, and she gives us some great advice on how to break into the literary world as a writer. Today's guest is poet Anna Rose Welch. Hello, everybody. Welcome to part two of our two-part podcast featuring author Anna Rose Welch, poet and author of We the Almighty Fires, available online and in bookstores all over the world. And we've got part two coming up right now of our interview with poet and author Anna Rose Welch. I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure we would all like to have the time to pursue our passions, but you know, there is the reality of real life, that we all have families and jobs and other responsibilities that sometimes interfere with our ability to just be creative and just to explore our emotions and our arts. Well, Anna is going to talk to us for a little bit right now about how she balances work and being a poet. Here's Anna Rose Welch. Being, you know, I work full time as an editor for a pharmaceutical publication, which is the complete opposite of poetry, right? Um, And so I spend my days standing at a desk and I write articles, you know, that are based off of interviews with pharmaceutical executives and, and I travel to conferences and learn about regulatory trends and, you know, the manufacturing challenges of these drugs. And and so it's it's a very different world. And I often feel like, you know, as I'm writing, I'm using sort of the left side of my brain, right? It's the more analytical. It's the, okay, so these paragraphs have to be in a specific order. I have to introduce these quotes in a certain way. I have to, you know, you know, and, and a lot of it was about sort of building my editor's voice, right? And then to go into the poetry world, it's a very different process. But I almost feel like they both have kind of played, you know, with they they've both influenced, you know. So sure. a lot of my a lot of my work writing about pharmaceuticals is very personal. You know, I use the narrative I a lot and it's very much like I feel like I've spent a lot of time building that editor's voice and that it has come pretty naturally now, right? It comes very naturally now. For poetry, I think a lot of what I spend my day doing, you know, reading and thinking very critically about this information that I'm being given and and larger big picture trends and themes and, and challenges, a lot of that kind of thinking um, and almost being on your feet, right? You know, because a lot of times in interviews, I'll be like, okay, <laughs> what do I say? You know, like, oh, question, you know. Um, I think in poetry, the same thing starts to happen, right? I'm approaching each thing as sort of a, not necessarily a problem that needs to be solved, but I'm looking at it as this sort of, this challenge that's facing me. And there are a number of different 
tools or levers, you know, that you right. could implement. To, it's a project to, that needs to be assembled. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. And so I feel like in some ways, you know, the personality of poetry has worked its way into my work writing, and I feel like sort of the analytical, almost left-brained, very critical thinking approach is now kind of working its, it's way, way into, into poetry. poetry. <laughs> um, and I don't necessarily know if those are great or, or, or bad things. I, I think they're they're good for now. But I think, yeah, Right, it's just it's, how it is. It right? is, yeah. and it's, you know, it, it's amusing to no end, really. <laughs> well, you know, uh, if you were a novelist and the skill in writing a novel is keeping all the characters straight and, and, and all the, the events straight and mm -hmm. keeping it rolling for a thousand pages... <laughs> Uh, and then succinct, succinctly wrapping it all up into a pretty package by the time you get to the end, or not, or leaving room for the sequel or the prequel or however it is. Yeah. Uh, kind of the same thing with, with crafting film. Uh, but with poetry, some of your poems are a page long. Some mm -hmm. are half a page long. Mm -hmm. Some are multiple pages long. Um, anatomy. Call it what you will. The moon filling its pockmarks with theft. Yet You've got this... Six lines. Mm -hmm. There's one poem that's six lines long. Um, how long does it take you to craft something like that? Where <laughs> you know you see the movies, you've yeah. seen the author sits down at his typewriter, or he's got his half-smoked cigarette in his mouth and a, and a half a bottle of gin sitting next to him, and mm -hmm. it's a dark, smoky room, and he starts typing away, and soon he's got 300 pages. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, yeah. How long does it take you to craft six lines? Oh man. So. It depends, again, on the timing, right? Now, today, uh, it could take me weeks. You know, I've been working on the same poem, which is probably, well, it's grown considerably in the past few days, but for the first, I got maybe three, four lines. Mm -hmm. It took me another week or two to get two or three more, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that poem wasn't done. Um, Writing small poems was something that didn't come naturally to me at first. When I was younger, in high school, when I first started writing poems, I'd write these just excessively long, rambling, lyrical things that were just full of words like love and beauty. And, and I tried to cram all of the musical instruments possible into each poem, you know, and there's like, I'd throw in a, a romantic European city for, for, you know, extra charm, like Dubrovnik, here, here's it's Dubrovnik. Every, you know? po every possible poetic device. <laughs> exactly. Right, it was all in, in one thing and it would go on for pages. Um, and I got challenged by my first workshop author, you know, my first workshop leader to write a one page poem and I did it and it was such an accomplishment and then I was like you know what this I need to do this right um, and so I then kind of had a hard time not writing short poems um, a lot of a lot of the poems in this book you know I wasn't striving for a certain length um, they took anywhere I mean a majority of these poems took anywhere from they could have been written in an hour and a half right I think the poem to the knees which is just a very short um, paragraph, right? I think it's maybe 10 lines long. Um, that took me an hour. After three hours of being exasperated, I packed my stuff up to go home. And I ended up going and realizing how nice it was outside at this cafe. And I sat down at the table and all of a sudden a line hit me. And then I was through the poem in probably 40 minutes, right? And then I polished it for a few more, right? Um, and then some of the other poems in here, like it was, there's a poem, Ravishment, which is 15, 18 lines, somewhere in there. That took me 
probably about three months, right, of going back and right now too where I'm at is a lot of, you know, my my critical analytical mind takes over and and I start thinking about all of the possibilities that this one poem could be. And when I get stuck, then I try to put something that I've been working on weeks, I try to cram things together, right? Like, oh, maybe this is the missing half to that other half that I was working right, on Right, because your poetry ago. isn't disjunct. They all start and they end. Mm-hmm. And uh, the middles are just full of things that make you double think yourself. As a matter of fact, if you go to Anatomy, which is, I think, page three in your book, you probably know that because, well, you put it together and wrote <laughs> put it Put it all. together, yeah. Um, <laughs> why don't you read that for us and then talk mm-hmm. us through it a little bit. Okay. Am I putting you in the spot? No. You don't have much of a choice. I don't. <laughs> There's a giant microphone. There's a giant microphone right in front of you. <laughs> so this poem is called Anatomy. Call it what you will. The moon filling its pockmarks with theft. The algid sea thrumming once caulked ships. A house with four chambers where people wander saying, oh, Two staircases separated by a single wall, commiserating in the dark. The body, a half-acre tomb. So from what I remember, right, this, was, this poem was written when I was in grad school. It was actually probably one of the first ones that I ever wrote. And I remember coming down to my roommate at the time, um, who was sitting in the living room, Uh, And she was, I I took her this draft and I was like, so I think I wrote something. Take a look at it. You know, let me know what you think. And she was like, you know what? I think the language here could get even more disturbing and weird. Right. And so she was talking to me about, you know, the image of the moon and the sea and, and making sure that it's almost this disturbing idea. Right. The anatomy as being this. It's this. The body is something that we know so well. Right. It's, it's probably arguably we know our bodies better than a lot of other things. Right. We, we know when we feel well, we know when we don't feel well. Uh, you know, we get used to managing certain diseases, conditions, etc. But like there are so many ways that you can make the body unfamiliar. And to me, that was putting it into or thinking of it in different ways. Right. And thinking of it as something that wasn't me like this moon. Right. And thinking about stealing light you know the sea these ships that were once things that are now destroyed underwater but the sort of memory the repetition of the water through them is sort of coursing around like memory it's thinking about or it can mimic the heart right there's a lot of the heart in this book the the house with four chambers where people saying oh right if you think about it's a fourth the heart is a mm-hmm. four chamber right mm-hmm. um and that was kind of the, the these two lines specifically are kind of an inside story for me a little bit because my grandmother grew up in a coal mining town and and when i was growing up i used to go visit her in her house which was an old coal mining property and the house itself is two-sided and there are two units on each side and so she lived in one unit and then her brothers lived in the back and they had you know made the two separate units in the back all into one you know flat but for the most part right those used to be four separate families would live in these tiny little homes and in in my grandmother's house um, on her in her unit they had actually knocked down the wall up at the top of the stairs so that you could take the stairway up 
and then go back down the stairs into my my great uncle's right apartments in the back. Um, and so I started to think about that as you know the house is sort of this place where you know a body just sort of works its way through right it's like blood circulating through um the staircases are you know they're separated by a wall it's thinking about the distance between bodies right um how we can share these walls but not technically you know be connected right Right. there's sort of a there was a poet that visited Allegheny when I was in college and he had mentioned that he was always intrigued by the notion of apartments because there are all of these lives in one little space that are you know and you're you're going to bed and there are just these tiny little walls and everyone's sleeping at the same time you know just separated by these tiny little walls and then thinking too about you know the body as a half acre tomb right there's the body is oftentimes a place of darkness. It's, you know, where the traumas are kept. The, the questions we don't ask are left unanswered, right? The heart is broken. The, you know, there's, there's loss. There's all kinds of damage that can happen to it, right? So a lot of this poem was, was about taking what was familiar and really making it weird, you know, and making it weird to me, you know, like thinking about the moon, like I'd never thought about the moon. You know, you look at it and there are so many little holes. And if the light is right, you can see the 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 dents in it. Right. And the darker splotches. And you think of those as pockmarks. And it's like, ooh, you know, that's so weird. Um, thinking about them as these blemishes. Right. I mean, just just thinking about placing the body into to other things or, or looking at other things as a form of, of biology, you know, that to me was was sort of the goal. Right. Twisted a little. Yeah. Twisted, but not uh, morbid. Just no, twisted. it can. Be, I mean, it can be morbid too. I think there's a lot of there's some morbidness in this book, and I've had people, you know, write to tell me they love a certain poem and. and, and it's a little sexy. It's it's a little There's it's a little, a little sexy. Little sexy. One it's of the <laughs> grad school and you coming out. Yeah. Uh, one of the blurbs calls it a sexy reliquary, which yeah. is by far one of the best blurbs I've ever read. So. <laughs> but um, I'm gonna have you read one more. That's one of my favorites. It's yeah. on page 31, okay. um, and I'll have you just oh. take a quick brush through that one, and then uh, maybe I'll let you pick one or two of your own. Okay. So, uh, but this one is called "The Scriptures Tell Us These Are Ordinary Times." That's mm-hmm. a nice plan words. Oh, thank too. you. <laughs> the scriptures tell us these are ordinary times. The Bible said, let there be light. And there were men carrying lamps into the mines and women scrubbing dust from port steps. The country, uncountable acreage, has been cracked open like a rib cage and orchard trees are grappling with sky. Watch them shift their roots. On the branches, the weight of apples. Each fall, a bright crush of red reminds us hearts still work underground. So a lot of this poem was, um, as I went through a phase in grad school (laughs) where I was obsessed with mining culture. And obviously I just, you know, my grandparents, you know, grew up in that sort of, in that town and that culture. Um, 
And, and I, I was obsessed with it to some extent because of my experiences in the country there. They had an orchard, you know, I used to spend so much time there. My brother and I would play near an old strip mining site, you know, it was just what I remember is this huge field covered in coal, which, you know, was probably this tiny little square, you know, I was five. But um, I, I, I got to this point where I wanted to write about it. But and so I, I would try to mythologize it. Right. But what ended up happening so often was that I would just end up writing these poems, you know, about just life in these towns. And there really wasn't a whole lot sort of emotionally at stake. Right. Um, I was having the hardest time thinking about or I was just having the hardest time writing about mining <laughs> the way that I wanted to. Right. It would just end up becoming just a description of these places. And I think that that was an important formational, you know, process. Um, it was this poem, I think, that in the book that really does capture that, that, that the culture a little bit or, or some of what I was trying to do with, you know, including my obsession with mining in this book. But what ended up happening to that obsession was also sort of not only the, the act of literally drilling into the earth and removing part of the earth, right? But it was also, you know, it's, it's the method we use to get light, right? Um, and energy. It's mining is the act of questioning something, drilling down into it and poking and prodding and saying, tell me your secrets, you know? Here, it's thinking about you know, the fracturing of the earth and, and what's underneath, right? The ground and the question of, of death, of mortality, of myth, right? And, and, you know, so at the very end, the hearts still work underground, right? It's that the notion of rebirth, perhaps, things that are gone are not necessarily gone, um, as we might think that they are, right? People aren't necessarily gone. Stories aren't necessarily gone even if the main actors in them are gone, right? Um, literally. But so that was something that ended up happening, you know, in this poem and, and throughout, I think, too. There are a few others in this book that, that touch a little bit on that, on the, the concept of mining, of, of searching for language, of, of addressing the questions that we have. Let me pick a, another poem. Yeah, you've got it marked up pretty good. She's looking through her book right now, which you can't see on radio, which is always interesting radio. Uh, but she's got it marked with lots of little blue tabs. I Why do. do you have it marked with little blue tabs? So when I do readings, which is um, only occasionally here and there, I'll do a reading. And I often want to make it as expedited as possible mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, what, what poems I want. So I use them to mark which one, so I can just grab the tab and flip really quickly, which is not what's happening right now because I have no idea which poems yet to read. Do you want a saucy poem or a not saucy? Saucy might be poem? fun. Saucy poem might be fun. All right. Just because you used the word saucy. <laughs> I can use that on the radio. <laughs> so this poem is um, one of the ones I wrote as well in grad school, and it actually ended up being my first foray into um, prose poems, which... You know, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the concept, it's it's basically, it looks just like a paragraph, right? It's just a poem written in a paragraph. There's no line breaks. There's no stanzas. Um, there's a sort of lyricalness. There's there's a big debate, right, about what makes a prose poem versus a piece of flash fiction, but that's a whole different topic for another day. Um, but I was very intrigued by that form when I was in grad school. So I ended up writing this story in which I am renamed Saint. It had been so long since we'd touched, you thought I must have found God. 
I caught you in the dark watching a video, a piano on the curb letting itself be touched and touched, singing for any finger that asked. It only survived one night before men with sledgehammers shattered it to tinder, took away each metal part that sang. Each time I caught you watching this, your face glowing in the darkness of our bedroom, you told me you were learning acceptance. After all, this is the world we live in. Man can be broken and made whole again. Woman with all her faults remains dismembered, body forever in pieces. I understand why you wouldn't wish to risk that, you said, leaving space and bed between us, but growing increasingly jealous of thunder because it alone could rouse me in the night. This is the God you imagined for me, a storm I had no choice but to wake for. Maybe our God is the same. In my head, he has dark hair and olive skin and is far from soft when he bites a crucifix on the back of my neck. That poem, um, there's actually a video on YouTube uh, of a piano that's left on the curb. Yeah, I think it's in Boston or New York City. And, I watched it when I was in grad school and I was horrified by it because it's so cool, right? You get to watch this piano just left out on the curb and you see all these people walking by and a lot of people just kind of stop and stare at it. And you got other people that, you know, put their fingers on a couple of the keys. Some people sit down and play it. You know, every it's this big scene, right? And, you know, uh, and it's just speeding through all of this interaction with this one piano on the street corner during a course of a few hours, right? And all of a sudden these men show up and they literally just destroy it. They have sledgehammers, they have axes, they break it into pieces, they take all the metal out of it. All that's left at the end of that video is just a pile of wood on a curb. And so that was something that really just resonated with me. And you took that concept. I did. And put it in relationship standards, mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's pretty apropos sometimes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I will read. So as you can tell, uh, if you're listening right now, and we hope you are, <laughs> that um, when she says saucy, it's up to you as to how saucy it actually is. <laughs> it's not Fifty Shades of Grey. It's not Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. No. Okay, I'm going to read this one as well. This poem is called Ravishment, and actually it was kind of based off of a, a dark concept. So ravishment, right, which is if we think about to be ravished, you know, it's we have such a almost a positive sexy connotation, saucy connotation right. for it, right? But back in at least medieval literature, right, it was the concept of a woman being taken right. and stolen away from her father and ruined right or um abused uh, and and so this was a concept that i had written a lot about in in grad school as a student right or in in undergrad sorry as a student i took a course on medieval breton lays and there was all kinds of ravishment going on and, and raptists and you know and rapture and all that so um i wanted to write a little bit i wanted to explore that concept in a different world right a different realm in a perhaps a more common image. So this is ravishment. Over the trees, birds hang themselves from the sky. In portraits, the Christ child clutches sparrows like these in his fist. Something this ordinary is supposed to represent my soul. In your fist, a tangle of my hair, the color of a finch. 
With each tug, my skull understands rapture. Somewhere I know there's a hunter with astonishing red hands, tossing a heart aside like a broken clock. It leaves its brilliance behind on his skin, on the snow like a scarlet ribbon torn from a gift. This is how we decide who the hunter and who the hunted. Light. First there's the chase, then the blaze, then the taking. Into the woods like marionettes, the man, the sudden doe. The trees trembling to flee themselves. The moon's silver, holy and wide like the jaws of a trap. Love, so much love, thrown over a shoulder, its legs tied together with cord. So how is it that young people have uh, such an ability to reach so deep inside and pull out <laughs> stuff like that? Hmm. And it gets more difficult as you get older. <laughs> how can young people do it? Well, as I said, I think a lot of it is um, there has poetry world has broken open right now. There are kids writing better than I I was writing at the age of 17 or 18. Right. I It took me until I was 27 to write like they are now. Right. I think part of it is because there are so many great examples out there. I think that poetry as a whole has begun to get more press. I think with the the social media, you know, uh, world that we're living in. Anybody can be a star. Anyone can be a star. There's a lot of places you can look for it. You can find it very easily. Um, I think that to some extent, too, I, I do think that, you know, majoring in the humanities gets kind of a bad rap now. Um, but there are those, the brave souls, right? And, that, and, and the encouraged, the parents that encourage their kids to do what they love and, you know, are interested in and passionate about with a, a healthy dose of reality, right? You need a little bit of realis realism to, to keep you grounded, right? But that allow you to, I think that we do live in a time where you are able to encourage your passions, right? Or, or pursue your passions. I think that there are a ton of writing festivals. There are, there are new, um, you know, d grad programs every day for the MFA programs. You know, more and more people are getting creative writing degrees. Um, I also think, too, there is more emphasis on the individual experience, I think. And to some extent, that's there's a very vibrant poetry culture everywhere in this world. But I think in the U.S., it kind of ties into this notion of, you know, our, our individuality and our, you know, identity as citizens. And and today, so much of it is is response you know to some of the political goings on it's 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 engaging with our culture and our society and thinking about you know making the world a better place and, and making it more um, making sure every voice is heard right and I think that there is a large emphasis in our culture now to do that and rightfully so and poetry is a great place to do that there's a lot of emphasis on individual feelings as well um, and experiences so and, and how those experiences can reach other people. You're listening to Better Than Monkeys, a production of WQLN Radio.
What a great interview with author and poet Anna Rose Welch. Thank you, Anna, for joining us here on Better Than Monkeys. Her book, We the Almighty Fires, is available online or at your local bookstore. And if you can't find it at your local bookstore, make sure to ask for it because it's well worth the read. Great summer reading. Thanks again to Anna Rose Welch for joining us for an episode or two of Better Than Monkeys. Thank you at home for listening to our podcast. You can find more digital services available at wqln.org, including PBS Passport, where you can stream your favorite PBS programs at your leisure. I'm Brian Hanna, and make sure to check out each new episode of Better Than Monkeys, released the second Tuesday of every month only at wqln.org. Thanks for listening and see you for the next episode of Better Than Monkeys. Are you reading your own stuff on your phone? No, I'm reading about Italy's annual snake festival, (laughs) which is apparently a thing. Every May 1st, the town of Cocciulo and Abruzzo carries out a slithery ritual, the Festa dei Serpari, or Serpent <laughs> Festival, which sees locals parade the streets with scores of specially caught snakes. <laughs> Poisonous snakes? Especially caught. Especially I don't know. Caught. Then what do they do with them after they catch them and parade the streets? They're like specialist handlers called serpari. The snakes are draped around the statue of San Domenico di Sora, the patron saint of Cochulo, and the protector against toothache. (laughs) Handily enough, (laughs) snake bites. But I guess they (laughs) they used to worship, the people there used to worship a serpent goddess who possessed magical powers to control snakes and protect from poisoner's sickness. Can you work that into poetry i most certainly could i most (laughs) certainly could um actually that was that's what made me click on it you know it's like that is so obscure and strange that you know like one of my i think we should bring that over here we probably should we should i mean if my mom caught wind of it she'd run screaming for the hills and would never be found again because she's afraid of italians (laughs) yes no she's terrified of snakes all things snakes (laughs) all things things snakes yeah (laughs) leather good food sunny weather oh gosh i'd hope you wouldn't be afraid of italian food